All right, welcome to And Sen, a podcast where Cameron Crane and Mike Wilson, us, are us. discussing stuff. That's us, right? Yes, we're going to be talking about things and stuff. Yeah, stuff and things. Uh-huh. We've uh, spoken about a lot <laughs> of stuff and things previously, uh-huh. and now we're speaking about other stuff and things. Mm-hmm. That's the basic plan. <laughs> and to start with, um, our uh, topic of discussion is going to be surrealism. Yeah, so um, um, what got us into this, really, we're thinking about how um you know we you see the term surreal kind of all over the place mm-hmm. you know particularly um and with reference to david lynch you know we've been on this podcast talking about twin peaks a bit mm-hmm. and often it seems like people just mean something's weird yeah right but we knew that there's this background of surrealism as a, a movement as a philosophy if you like right mm-hmm. an, an art movement and uh and you know i'd read um Andre Breton's Surrealist Manifestos myself a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started talking about that and digging into it and said, hey, man, we should do, let's do a podcast about this. Let's talk about what surrealism is in that, you know, kind of um, historical sense or conceptual sense. Sure. Right? What's the philosophy of surrealism? Because it turns out, right, it's not just about art and certainly not just about doing weird shit. Yeah, sort it's of not is. just a style. It certainly yeah. is in the language now, meaning just something that's idiosyncratic, right? But well, right. And one, I mean, part of what's interesting too is if you look at the word, this prefix "sur" in French, right? It you know it could mean like above, in, um, you know, over, um, this sort of thing, and so you're adding that on to realism. So, you know, people talk about something being surreal. You know, often maybe they mean it's unreal, but that's not really what Breton means. That's not what the surrealists meant by surrealism. There's a there's a sense of it as being like more real than real, more real, above yeah. real. Yeah. Yeah. And how can that be unless you change your parameters of what you think real is, which is right. mm-hmm. basically which is, what we're yeah, about to get into. Yeah. That's sort of the whole point, the thing to get into here. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not hyper real because there's a realism as an artistic movement. Right. Well, that, right. Yeah. And you could use all, all the terms hyper real or whatnot that would describe like how close to reality can you make this look mm-hmm. versus tapping into a higher understanding of reality itself. Yeah. I think what you get here is more of an expanded sense of the real, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about a couple steps down the line here is even contrasting surrealism with realism, mm-hmm. you know, and um, Breton, I love this passage in the um I think it's in the first Realist Manifesto mm-hmm. when he, he like throws out this passage from Dostoevsky mm-hmm. from uh, Crime and Punishment, I think, and just like a description of a room. Mm-hmm. Like this is realism or, or what Breton's calling realism, right? right? Uh, and he, he just says like, I refuse to enter this room. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> <Right. laughs> like because it's fucking boring or, or, you know, I mean, what? It's it's like um, I guess I think, too, about. Um, you can think about this in terms of television now or, um, uh, re- I mean, reality TV. It's not, it's not real in, in a sense. It's still sort of contrived. Right. Or like that sense of reality that you get through what amount to cliched tropes, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you think about watching your primetime TV, you're watching NCIS or, you know law and order or whatever any number of these shows i feel like there's some kind of sense of 
uh, a, a kind of fake realism, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know? Contrived realism. Yeah. It's, it, I think the reality show is the perfect example of that. Yeah. Where everybody says, oh, it's reality TV, but it's even further removed from reality, really, than a sitcom or a, or a narrative well, series yeah, I mean, would be. I mean, you know, and part of, yeah, and part of that is just, you know, the form. You're, you're trying to make a TV show, you're trying to make it entertaining, or you're making a sitcom or something, you want, and you want to make it funny. And people don't talk like that, you know. People mm-hmm. don't talk like Aaron Sorkin characters either. Mm-hmm. Um, reality is, um, you know, getting hungry, getting bored, mm-hmm. sleeping, and dreaming. Mm-hmm. It's going to be important to surrealize. Sitting and thinking and not understanding your own thoughts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> staring against the wall. Well, it's interesting when you oh. talk about Dostoevsky's room and Breton kind of like refuting it. That reminds yeah. me, there's another quote where the surrealist would always say, now this is what we're talking about, was a, a figure who we'll get to later, the Comte Lautremont, mm-hmm. who in Maldoror, I think, describes um, a room as beautiful as a chance encounter between a sewing machine and an umbrella on an operating table. Yeah, I love it. Famous like. Yeah, sewing yeah, machine. So and the, yeah. I, that kept coming up in the research, and to you know compare that to um, him refusing to j- enter a room that Dostoevsky is describing as realistic as he can. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. like the Dostoevsky passage I don't have it in front of me, but it's just, you know, it's just, you see this in all sorts of novels, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh, the, the drapes were a smoky yellow and, <laughs> you know, and and the Bretons are saying like, don't uh, don't tell me what the room looks like, mm-hmm. you know. It was a cold and stormy <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, well, you know, and um, I don't know what you think about that. In my mind, that's a little bit more mood setting. But mm-hmm. you know, the description of characters you often get in in novels too, where it's just like, and why, mm-hmm. you know, to some extent, you know, to how, is, how relevant is it to the story? Do you need to tell me, you know? what color hair this person has and that sort of uh, stuff. I don't know. Yeah, and in seeking kind of um, a further understanding of reality or what is real, if you're not drawing on that which you're not already aware of, then how are you going to get there? So it seems to me like these the methods that they're introducing and what mm-hmm. they're looking for is um, not just telling me what you already know, but tell me what you don't already know. And how do you? How are yeah. you going to get access to tell me well, that? Well, this is part of what I love is is the extent to which they're interested in sort of providing food for thought or something like this, mm-hmm. you know. And and like um, you mentioned before, we sat down that list where the run through different figures Breton does, and he says, you know, this person's a surrealist, that you know, mm-hmm. here, this person's a surrealist there, mm-hmm. and you know, then you'll also get things like they'll say, I think, uh, like Victor Hugo is a surrealist when he's not stupid. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, Takes a stance definitely uh, against certain figures. Yeah. yeah. Well, but he's still saying at the same time, it's like, oh, there's sometimes there's really great stuff going on there, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's just being it's just being stupid. Well, and then as an artistic movement, there's a long history of the core surrealists trying to, you know, get people into the group that don't necessarily want to be associated with it, mm-hmm. but whose work really kind of does fit in with that. Yeah, and as you mentioned, Lost Vermont becomes a kind of patron saint for them in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the story I was reading is that Tupo um, found Lost Vermont's book sort of randomly right. in, a, in a shop. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we should have added the caveat at the beginning. Apologies for mispronouncing all of these names. Yeah, there's a lot of French <laughs> yeah, names and a lot of names we're not familiar right. with how to pronounce them. So, of course, that. And I there's mean, a lot of figures yeah. with a lot of names. A lot of names. And, I mean, I studied French and... Uh-huh. But I, my French pronunciation has always been terrible. Yeah, because it's always like there, there are there are so many letters in French you're not supposed to say, mm-hmm. you know. And 
And when, also a lot of when these. When do you say it? When do you not? Yeah, and a lot of these names are Swiss names, and you know mm. some other names from other nations. So, but anyway, yeah, so there's going to be some scrambling. And since we're at it, you know, with a little bit of, uh, um, you know, housekeeping, uh, you know, it might be worth noting that we're not approaching this as experts in the field. We're not. Oh, art, right. Yeah. We're not uh, trained art historians with PhDs in this, but that we find it fascinating enough that it's worth going through it all uh, here on our podcast and kind of discovering and discussing and and analyzing what we're learning as we're learning it yeah indeed i mean i do have you know um well i'm a, I'm a step away from phd in philosophy if people care about credentials mm-hmm. so i mean i guess my tendency is to you know be coming at it from that kind of angle mm-hmm. um but the art is, is definitely interesting as well mike here's background in art makes art various kinds. i know a lot so about production honest. i'm yeah. a step away from a phd oh. in bullshit artistry as well <laughs> so yeah you make things <laughs> i mean you do stuff you know so uh, yeah, but we're not we're not we're not all claiming to be experts, but but we're going to dive deep from where also, we stand. You know, I think that's also in the spirit of surrealism, as mm-hmm. I understand it, right? Yeah. You know, like, like we have no, you know, surrealism. Uh, they would say is not an art movement. It's not a not a kind of literature. Mm-hmm. Like we have no use. We'll make use of literature, but you mm-hmm. know, it's also at the same time it's like fuck literature. So, but you're setting the stage talking about Philippe Soupault, who is finding Maldoror and gives it to Breton, who reads it in one night. You know, the, the story, story yeah, the story first is that Soupault himself read it twice in one night. Mm-hmm. And, like, and it seems like um, a chance discovery. He just, like, happened upon this book, which mm-hmm. you have to think about. You know, we're going back to the early 20th century, mm-hmm. right, and uh, and how that would go, you know. So certainly... Lost Vermont wasn't like um, a big known figure. This is a matter of him supposed finding this obscure book mm-hmm. in a little corner of a shop. It just like kind of calls out to him. He picks it up and reads it, fascinated by it, gives it to Breton. Breton reads it. He's like, yes, this is. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I mean, the idea of surrealism was already kind of going, but when they discovered Lost Vermont, it was a big, big thing for him. Right. So we should set the stage a little bit of how this movement develops and where it comes from. So, mm-hmm. of course, uh, we know Breton writing the manifestos and such. But let's talk a little bit about the era. What's, you know, of course, this is uh, a lot is changing in the world at this time that this is developing. It's such a fascinating area, uh, era. I mean, it's like, just if you think about it, you know, everything that was going on um, around this period of time in world history, um, you know, if we're, th- we're going to the whole world, mm-hmm. you know, you've got, uh, let's run them down some dates here real quick. 1917, you've got the October Revolution in Russia, mm-hmm. Bolsheviks, start of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, of course, in the States, um, women's suffrage movement, also prohibition. I mean, I don't know how related these things are to mm-hmm. um, surrealism and where we're going necessarily. Oh, communism, something we'll, we'll talk about uh, at least at some point. Um, and then, you know, ultimately the eruption of World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, Which itself is on the heels of the Industrial Revolution and all of this leading up to people being connected in different ways that they hadn't before. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, late 19th century, I guess, is where we probably pin the Industrial Revolution. Capitalism's really getting going, industrialized capitalism. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the world's getting more connected, mm-hmm. right? Um, not only kind of physically in terms of being able to move around the world, mm-hmm. right? I mean invention of the airplane and and shit like that's going on better boats better ships communications telegram Mm -hmm. the telegraph um and um 
you know, Freud talks about this um, in Civilization and its Discontents, how it's work capitalism or whatever term he uses, you know, man's unleashing these forces mm -hmm. that um, meaningfully elude our control. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're opening up. It's almost like late 19th century, early 20th century. We opened up this technological bag of worms. Right. That's just continued, mm -hmm. you know, probably till now mm -hmm. and forward. Yeah. Pandora's box leading to World War One. And I think that sets the stage for a lot of reactionary thought to, OK, this is what logic brought us. This is what reason brought us. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, let's talk about World War One for a minute, because. I, you know, I think at this point it often gets kind of lost in the historical shuffle for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Think about World War II. Mm -hmm. People will hold up World War II as almost uh, an exemplar of a just war, right? Like right. We, we, had to, we had to beat the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Had to beat Hitler. I don't disagree with that one at all. I don't, I don't disagree at all. Mm -hmm. But World War One again, I'm not a historian, so I'm just working on my knowledge of it from school and other stuff I've read and so on and so forth. I mean, yeah. in many ways, World War One seems kind of dumb. Don't you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly what the surrealists would argue. <laughs> it's just, why why this happen? And there's a number of um, art movements that we'll discuss um, moving forward in these years uh, after World War One of people that are uh, intelligentsia looking back at the war and questioning, like, why did this have to happen? What's the logic <laughs> behind so much death? So much. And is that yeah. justified really by boundaries, uh, nation states, well, and, and money? I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, so... Uh, brief sketch of the history here, as I understand it, right? Mm -hmm. Again, not an expert on this by any means. But you kind of have all of these different nations making these alliances with one another, mm -hmm. right? And, I mean, of course, you also have the history of colonialism that's been at play here, mm -hmm. right? And um, all of this is, I mean, it's the it's the powerful or, you know, it's the, um, the bourgeoisie, um, you know, um, these governments making these agreements with one another to when now um, Franz Ferdinand gets assassinated mm -hmm. and it sets off the powder keg, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I don't even remember all of the alliances, but, you know, because this country has an alliance with that country, this country has an alliance with that. Now, you know, someone gets assassinated in, um, uh, well, it was in Sarajevo, I think. Yeah, and, uh, you know, just... All, all of a sudden, the world's at war. Mm -hmm. Who cares about the war? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the governments do or whatever, but you're sending off um, young men. I guess it was, it was probably all men. Mm -hmm. I, don't know if I don't know if there are women fighting World War I. Apologies if there are women who fought in World War I. Um, but you're, definitely you're, active roles in the war, but I yeah. don't know if uh, you have uh, women soldiers per se. Probably not on the front lines and the trenches and stuff. But, I mean, regardless, you're sending off the young people mm -hmm. to fight and die over this. Mm -hmm. And what are they fighting and dying over? Right. Some alliances that governments have signed. Yeah, and not only fighting and dying. Where you're drawing a line on a map. But the uh, because of the Industrial Revolution, because you have tanks and you have flight yeah. and you have the type of war that was happening was just, a, you know, a mangler, just a machine grinding up bodies at such a rate that the world had never seen. So you have right. people witnessing, like, wait— it's this advanced that you can just, you know, chop through people that quickly and having so many parties involved mm -hmm. and everybody vying and pulling in different ways. It must seem at a time like that, which we haven't experienced in our lives, but it must seem like, oh, my God, is the world deca decaying into its end? Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, there are these stats um, about the number of soldiers in World War One who, you know, like, wouldn't fire their weapons or 
shot their weapons into the air mm-hmm. and stuff like this. You've heard yeah. of this before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy to think about. Well, I mean, World War One, just why? Mm-hmm. Um, and then all that death, and then coming out of it, you know, what was the point? I think that's part of what some of these guys were asking themselves at the time. Mm-hmm. Why? Why did all these people die? Mm-hmm. And also to be noted, versus previous wars, it's trench warfare. It's mm-hmm. very specifically planned and looks different in a very visual way. It looks and it sounds different than any wars that have or battles that have ever been fought before. Yeah. They call it the Great War at the time, right? Yeah. Because there was no understanding of world war. It was just, you know, there are battles and there are, there are wars between nation states. Well, but and didn't they also call it the war to end all wars? Right. <laughs> Which yeah. didn't Sorry, turn buddy. out to be the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Um, but this idea that suddenly everybody's at war and mm-hmm. suddenly um, because of the machine, you know, you could have whole nation states erased and just the, the death toll being so insane. Um, so you can imagine, you know, living in this time and being um, educated and really like questioning, like what brought us to this? How do we stop it? And you you find a figure like Breton who is um, in the military and he's in uh, the war uh, acting at a hospital yeah. and he's treating people for um, basically at the time what they call being shell shocked. Right. Well, and so what he's seeing is major, yeah. major trauma. Yeah. Post-traumatic stress disorder is what right. I'd say now. Right. And, you know, we don't have the same um, means of treating soldiers and, and such at that time. So you can imagine the, the pain and the torment that yeah. was seen by him. Although, I feel the need to note as an aside here, I don't know that we've gotten a whole lot better on that front, mm-hmm. which is disgusting. Yeah. But, I mean, in terms of my understanding of, you know, war vets with PTSD and stuff like that and mm-hmm. suicide rates and not yeah, great. To be fair, not, yeah, not totally. Yeah. Right. But so he's working in one of these military hospitals, and he's exposed to all this kind of stuff um, where he – the one story that I heard that was uh, impacted him heavily was um, finding a soldier who was kind of in complete denial. Hmm. It was easier for him to, like, weave together that it was a conspiracy, that, that people were showing him smoke and bombs, that a war wasn't really on. Um. And Breton talks about how this one uh, soldier was – living in kind of this dream world where mm. the world wasn't at war, but there w- you know, there was a, a, a group that was trying to convince him that it was. And that was his way of rationalizing it, and it was the only... He created a, a false space that allowed him to cope, allowed him to, to um, deal, basically, to cope with what he was witnessing. Yeah. And so this, I think, is where kind of Freud enters the picture because Freud and his new theories that he's dropping on the world at this time are also a huge influence to surrealism, right? Yeah, huge influence on Breton, and and you know that that connects up with what you were just talking about. Um, but you know, for Freud, it's very much at that level of um, we might want to say therapy, right? It's psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a lot of people get down on Freud anymore, but most everyone still at least gives him credit for being kind of the founder of modern psychology, mm-hmm. more or less. Um, and I don't know, I personally I find Freud to be really interesting. I mean, there are certainly things in there that are problematic, to say the least. Right, yeah. Um, but then, you know, um, other things that can be really fruitful. And so, I mean, part of what's interesting, I think, is how um, Breton and the Surrealists pick up stuff from Freud 
but then ultimately are less interested in, you know, um, talk therapy or whatever we want to call it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're interested in this and in, in, in terms of crafting this sort of philosophy of life and art and all of that. Well, and give me a quick breakdown. So, and what we're talking about is how this relates to the subconscious mind and yeah. how they want to bring, they envision um, a higher form of reality, a surrealism that incorporates the dream world, dream logic, dream body, mm-hmm. and, and dream logic uh, as equally with um, the waking state and the subconscious mind. And right. so give me the breakdown of Freud, right? So, so Freud establishes that there's a thing called the unconscious, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, Freud would want to say the unconscious um, and as opposed to um, subconscious, which you were just saying, mm-hmm. which is fine. Um, but those would be, those don't mean exactly the same thing, right? Um, the unconscious really in Freud would be this kind of reserve of, desires or drives that are um they're unconscious or by definition Mm -hmm. right hopefully this is making sense to people Mm -hmm. so it's just like it's not just something i'm not thinking about right now or it's not just something that's kind of you know in the back of my mind or something like this but that there you don't have an avenue to get to it yeah i I don't have conscious um access to this Mm -hmm. So ultimately, Freud uh, moves to this terminology of the id mm-hmm. as it gets translated in English. But I think it's interesting and worth noting that um, that's a Latinization that occurs in the translation. Okay. Um, and it means I? No, the it. The it. The id is the it. Yes. Okay. Um, so the ego would be the I. Right. Which is Latin for I, is ego. Yeah, but yeah, okay. if you read the German, it's just, you know, that's eek, the okay. I. Okay, I see. And um, what is it? S. Again, I can't pronounce German well either. I could spell it better. <laughs> um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But it would be really, you know, you could you could do a more casual translation of Freud, I guess, in English, and it would be the I and the it. So the I, this would be my conscious mind, if you like. Mm-hmm. I go about my day. I do certain things. I want certain things. I have certain goals. I think I have certain goals, mm-hmm. right? But okay, so say I am um, thinking, oh, what um, what I'm going to do today is, uh, you know, I'm going to be real productive. You know, I'm going to run some errands. Um, I'm going to write this paper I've been working on or whatever. Um, now let's say I don't. Are you lazy. Well, why didn't I? Yeah. So why why didn't right. I? Why didn't I do it? Okay. I mean, I guess the the point is that on the on the Freudian way of thinking, it would be potentially to think, well, there there's an it in me, right? Mm-hmm. What, what does it want? Mm-hmm. You know. So maybe I'm saying I want to be productive and uh, finish my dissertation, but that's not what it wants. Mm-hmm. Like it wants something else, mm-hmm. and I'm not identifying with that whatever this thing is in me, this would be the unconscious. Hmm. So a sort of reserve of, again, drives, if you like, mm-hmm. right? Some, some sort of Im- impelled in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope this is making sense to people. It, uh, it is to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, another example, I've used, I've used the language before talking to people with some familiarity, at least. I can watch in a sporting event or something like this. Okay. 
And, you know, you can try like, oh, you know, okay, my favorite team's not playing, right? You can be like, which team do I want to win? Mm-hmm. You know, and you can think about it consciously. You know, and I've had this happen to me before where I like think about it consciously and I'm like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll root for this team. You know, my friend so-and-so likes that team. That would make sense if they won. My friend would be happy. And then I start watching the game and I'm like, no, my id wants the other team to win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just feel that like, <laughs> yeah. that is that, that's what it wants. Yeah. My id always goes for the underdog. Yeah. Regardless I, of my, regionalism. Mine, mine tends to as well. Yeah. Yeah. So but yeah, I, I had a great analogy in school that it was discussed to be like a rider and a horse, mm. a rider on a horse. Yeah. The rider is the conscious like eye that can, can has a certain amount of control of the horse, mm. but really the horse is the one moving the legs. So fundamentally, okay. the rider does not control those legs. Yeah. And if something, okay. if the horse suddenly needs water more than it needs to follow the reins or something, you know. Yeah. Well, so then in Freud, um, you know, the idea is that the the unconscious primarily gets formed by certain things like repression, mm-hmm. right? So, and then there are different kinds of structures that Freud will talk about, but mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, so something something happens to me and I can't handle it, and so it gets repressed. Mm-hmm. But then there's always going to be a return of that repressed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, it's also I mean, this is pretty controversial. Maybe this remains pretty controversial. Mm-hmm. The way in which Freud, you know, there's all it's all about sexuality mm-hmm. or the libido. We probably know the term libido mm-hmm. at this point, right? But I mean, Freud wrote this book on infantile sexuality. Mm-hmm infants Mm -hmm. you know but his claim really is that even as an infant he thinks like everything is sort of an erogenous zone Mm -hmm. think about a baby i guess Mm -hmm. you know so if he talks about infantile sexuality it's precisely not like adult sexuality right The, the whole story is about how you start off as freud says uh as an infant he claims we start off as polymorphously perverse. Mm-hmm. That's a, I like the phrase. Mm-hmm. Like the whole body is a sex organ. Hmm. Now people might feel uncomfortable about describing a baby that way, but F- Freud then thinks now you go through stages where then it, things get more localized. This is the stuff about oral stage, anal stage, genital stage that people have probably heard at least something about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, He's very normative about this, ultimately, right? Like you go through the whole Oedipal thing, like killing your father, blah, blah, blah. And what that really is his account of how you get to what he thinks of as normal, mature, uh, mature adult, heterosexual desire, if you like. Heterosexual, right, so he's, heterosexual he's using this terminology to describe a, a process, really, yeah. of uh, an organism, a being coming into a world, discovering the world mm-hmm. through its sensory input. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just pointing out that it's worth mentioning that it's still just a language that he's using to describe this process of moving from an, uh, a non-understanding and living in an environment to understanding and being socialized in some way to live in an environment with uh, other sentient beings. Yeah, it is that. And so... And, and it's also, but it's also like this question of, you know, like what turns you on, right? So there's a kind of fetishism here, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he tries to account for like, why, why does someone have a shoe fetish? Well, it's like, maybe he was looking at his mother's shoes and then looked up and saw her vagina. I don't, 
I remember reading that example. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of stupid. Like, yeah. Stupidly simplistic, maybe. But but that's about associations, right? Yeah, I like mean, that's... Physical it's, gratification or fulfillment of desire combined with a layer of associative information. Yeah, he's trying to, he's trying to articulate the structure. Mm-hmm. But I realized that I started talking about all of this because I mentioned repression. Mm-hmm. And so this has been a long path to get to the point of the thought that, okay, well, what if I'm encountered? What What if what I want is something that's not acceptable to me consciously, mm-hmm. right? Like my ego says, no, it's, it's not okay mm-hmm. to, to have that desire. That would be, you know, an instance of it getting um, repressed, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it would then still be there in this kind of reservoir of the unconscious. And this is where he would argue that that kind of repression can lead to neurosis, right? Yeah, precisely, mm-hmm. right? So with the studies on hysteria and so on, um, which hysteria is interesting because it doesn't seem to exist anymore, but it it does seem like Freud helped some people. He helped women, you know, who mm-hmm. were really, um, you know, sexually repressed and and so on and so forth um, with psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really does seem, you know, that um, you know even um, sometimes they would manifest physical type symptoms like their arm going numb or something like this. Mm-hmm. that um, through the process of psychoanalysis, Freud was able to help them with. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that there's, there's something, something today would make me think of like stress-related illness or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, they have, the terminology has probably changed and some of it's probably similar. But And of course, everything's fractured into different branches that believe yeah. different things now. But um, yeah. I mean, I think the big critique of Freud ultimately is about in various ways, People take issue with how he kind of makes everything about the Oedipal complex. He kind mm-hmm. of tends to make everything about sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, he says some things about feminine sexuality that are like highly questionable and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, there's um, there are issues about heteronormativity and things like this. And I think all that's fair, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, Freud Freud is the founder of psychoanalysis, and he kicks off something that um, you know if people are interested in. And it really carries forward in terms of people thinking mm-hmm. about this stuff in various ways. I mean, really up to now. Yeah, you know. So very important figure, um, but of course controversial. I mean, mm. for having all the answers, he also had his jaw removed because of uh, his cigar smoking or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, he um, died from the. Um, um, cancer. Yeah, but before uh-huh. that, I think they removed his jaw yeah. for a while. He lived without a jaw. Actually, you know, he was euthanized. Oh wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. But um, and I he asked for it as um, kill Max Shore. Oh. I think he asked his doctor to to kill him. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I in my studies, being you know in school, I studied uh, comparative religions and religious studies, um, mm. not like theology, but more comparative. And so when I pro- approached Freud in school, it was more through his lens on the views of uh, major religions. And so there's the future of an illusion that I've read, mm-hmm. and I'm more familiar with that side of this stuff. But in that, he argues that basically humanity is kind of in an adolescent phase, yeah. and they would not be able to grow up out of that phase until they can abandon mommy and daddy's, the dependence on mommy and daddy God, quote unquote. Yeah. You know? um, so p- what you just explained and the ideas of the unconscious and his views on religion, it makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, at that time, you know, we're talking a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, at that time, that it would make sense that um, 
that this would be super influential amongst intelligentsia in Europe and throughout the world who's really looking into, um, you know, modern ways of thinking and how to put your mind around what's happening in the world during well, this, this period. And, and to that point, and I think this is something that, that will, will connect up to surrealism in a certain way, you got to kill the father. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, talk about the Oedipus complex. Mm-hmm. People, you know, this comes from Greek myth, Oedipus, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole prophecy that he's going to kill his father and marry his mother. And then he does. You mm-hmm. know, hopefully you know that myth. But Freud picks up on that as a structure of, um, it's kind of the development of human sexuality. Um, and this would be, you know, masculine sexuality, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's the that's the key point that you got to kill your father mm-hmm. or rather i'm sorry you've got to kill the father please don't kill your father yeah th- we're not advising <laughs> that at all no no patricide patricide's yeah. not being endorsed Freud did not endorse patricide mm-hmm. the point's not about killing the flesh and blood person who is your father mm-hmm. right the point is that the father is this figure of authority mm-hmm. right and um, the internalization of that is what creates what Freud ultimately would call the, the superego, right? Or again, mm-hmm. this would be the uberit, mm-hmm. so overseeing the I, um, what we might think of as conscience and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. right? But that, so, you know, there are all of these problems with the father, but kind of getting, working it through, um, just sorry I was just trying to make clear for Freud basically killing the father that's a good thing mm-hmm. right in in terms of the psychoanalytic structure because it's um, a matter of um, moving past that kind of reliance on the father as the um, authority or whatever right I see and in, then kind of taking responsibility for yourself right right and in this time you know Looking at the war, I can see the father as the empire or mm-hmm. the building empire, and also the establishment of an authority that's the father that really is defined as uh, a generation before, mm-hmm. where you know the father might define a certain type of authority that just is not accurate for the the next generation. Yeah, and so I, I see it working in many ways as a great analogy to um, looking at what is the establishment and saying what are uh, what is wrong with this and how do we change it. And then, you know, it is in itself a revolutionary idea. And, of course, at this time, you have lots of major revolutions in the world happening. Mm. And, you know, um, on the global stage and also uh, in the sense of uh, the philosophies of art. And so, you know, um, you get these different movements. Uh, There's the Dada movement. There's Symbolist movement. There's Futurism. Mm -hmm. And throughout Europe, you get these uh, groups of people that... Uh, are really taking this seriously and really saying, hey, wait a minute, there's something going on here that perhaps the arts is where we need to be looking at. And in reaction to World War One, saying, okay, so if, if logic and reason is what brought on this type of authoritarian rule that is ready to just mangle every young person for mm-hmm. their own gain, then we need to look outside of logic. We need something else. And so Dada, we should talk about, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and um, the one book I was reading, I just described Dada as like, a negation, mm-hmm. right? That, I mean, that is just a negating of all that stuff you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Logic, reason, authority, you know, the state. Mm-hmm. Um, that, But almost that it was so purely um, negative 
that it, it didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess for me, when I think about Dada, I, I, I tend to go right to Duchamp. Um, what, what do you tend to think about? Well, as far as I understand it, there's different schools based on location. You have yeah. early Berlin Dada. You have Paris Dada. New York, it appears, with Duchamp. Mm-hmm. But, um, and the urinal, right? Yeah, our in case, mutts. In case people need a little touchstone for Dada here. Right. Um, and you have uh, some symbols, I think, that really represent it, but it is revolutionary in the sense of like recontextualizing, changing the rules about what we consider to be art. Mm-hmm. With the urinal itself, which was denied permission to be shown at the gallery that it was mm-hmm. supposed to be at the salon, um, uh, he was saying, he, you know, has this uh, alter ego, Armut, that is saying, oh, here, this is uh, an object of art because I've decided it is. Yeah, I'm I mean, willing it to be, I recontextualize it. And that was actually because of the nature of what it is. It's totally refused. And yeah, well, and this is something that might be a lot harder for people to connect to now. If they, you know, you almost need to be aware of the history because now it just seems like you know art's so wide open, mm-hmm. you know. But the re- if art's wide open now, mm-hmm. we're getting that part of why, you know, mm-hmm. the the history of modern art, um, da da. But I mean, also other things, you know, non-representational art and all of these art movements in the 20th century. And I think a lot yeah. of early data also you see in Berlin, a lot of it is um, uh, writings and pamphlets and collages of mm. I- political ideas. You had um, galleries and salon exhibitions that would have, you know, like there would be a pig hanging from the ceiling with a, a soldier's uniform on. You know, it was very specifically revolutionary stating something political. Right. But that I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, hopefully, you know, everyone should bear in mind here the context of that historically. Mm-hmm. Because, and like how controversial this was mm-hmm. that this, so they're they're subverting the norms of you know polite society and things right. like this at that point where it's like no you know art's paint like a painting on the canvas and you know mm-hmm. probably representational or uh, maybe maybe not maybe the, you know some abstract art is starting to get through yeah and you have like um, Duchamp making objects and combining like a bench and a bicycle wheel that you know putting them two of them together mm-hmm. totally negates the purpose of either of them you can't yeah. you can't use either of them anymore but i'm calling it art and it does tap into something that you know makes you think deeper about this this deep juxtaposition and yeah and but and but bucking an establishment that was there at the time right right as you say they won't let it in yeah. the museum or the gallery or whatever like mm-hmm. that's not art mm-hmm. you know um and the the term dada itself is also sort of purposefully like nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. Da 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 da. Mm-hmm. Da da. <laughs> yeah, I I could see that you it could almost be Zen in that way or something <laughs> too. You know. No, yeah, I think that was like part of the point. It was mm-hmm. just like um the, you know, the the kind of embracing of um a certain kind of absurdity, a certain kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And in opposition to, you know, common sense and rationality mm-hmm. whatever. And then, of course, you have, you know, the futurist movement and, you know, the idea that, okay, art itself can physically change into something unrecognizable, Mm -hmm. um, that we can start to create a new type of art that will in many ways seem like it's from the future because it's so foreign to what the establishment would accept. Um, You have the symbolist movement, which occurs mostly in literature, right? But there's a lot of figures that come from symbolism that are super influential on surrealists. Um, and you get people like, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe in the States, 
Mm-hmm. Um, people like uh, Charles Baudelaire in France. Right. So, I mean, the history here is where these would be precursors, I guess, mm-hmm. to surrealism in certain mm-hmm. ways in the 19th century. Right. And uh, I think there's a lot of names that are associated with that that themselves really could be a whole podcast and deserve a lot of attention. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could totally talk about Poe for a long time or Baudelaire. Rimbaud uh, would be another like huge Baudelaire. figure. I've got a, I've got a copy of uh, La Fleur de Mall at home. Yeah, have that. It's amazing. Dual language. Paris Spleen. You have a favorite? Yeah. I have a favorite Baudelaire poem. It's uh, it's Be Drunk. That's my favorite. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading about um, the lives of a lot of these figures that were influential to the Surrealists. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to put yourself in that time. It really is to picture mm-hmm. what it takes to stand outside of the mainstream and to still survive without going insane. You find a lot of these figures like mm-hmm. Baudelaire, you know, had there was trouble whether it was you know, kind of uh, just rejection in general or not getting funding when you always needed it or just the laudanum and opium and uh, Mm -hmm. absinthe all over the scene. Mm -hmm. And this idea that if you're going to be a poet and create something new, then you inject, and this is still true today probably for a lot of uh, circles of art, that you're attracted to look for people that are thinking differently as well. Yeah. And so you get a lot of these figures kind of combining. Um, Anybody that looks into the symbolist uh, writer's will come across, you know, Rimbaud and his life. Rimbaud is standing as that one figure that is saying, hey, you know, make the art your life. He is va- in his fascinating life. And right? his fascinating, um, yeah. And, um, you know, the poetry itself is amazing, but at some point Rimbaud is basically living a life that is a poem mm-hmm. and um, is revolutionary in itself and is very, very inspiring to a lot of people. Um, and so uh, just a, uh, there's a few names that um, are uh, artists that are kind of standing up and becoming known before the Surrealists um, are on the scene. And you get people like uh, Jarry, Alfred Jarry in France, mm-hmm. right? Um, you get people like Rousseau. Um, Henri Rousseau. Right? Henri Rousseau. Yeah. Um, and Guillaume Apollinaire, mm-hmm. another writer who uh, also experienced the war. Um, and who uh, are starting to, like you earlier said, buck the system or whatever. You have Jarry is famous for, right. you know, using the term shit to destroy you know as a high art aired, yeah. and causing yeah. basically a riot at the theater where his play was uh and let's um you mentioned apollinaire who um by all rights i guess coined the term surrealism yeah i and think he's credited with coining the term cubism too if i'm not mistaken um, yeah i believe i did read that yeah um but let's so let's talk at least a little bit about parade or, or maybe it should be parade mm-hmm yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, this is French, right? Uh, yeah, it's probably the same. Talking about Jean oh, Cocteau, sure. yeah. right? Um, and um, Picasso is involved, right? The, mm-hmm. the costumes and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the it was a ballet, and who else was involved? Uh, Sati, yes, the music, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, because I was reading that, I guess you know, Sati had written the music, and then Cocteau added some other. Um, noises, <laughs> cool, yeah. Like um, you know, more mechanical noises. And mm-hmm. like maybe Sati wasn't super happy about that at first because they, they they didn't collaborate on the idea of like, and then there's going to be a record or whatever. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, it, which which did kind of remind me of David Lynch a little bit, like right? Industrial Symphony or something. I certainly is sort of like that. Yeah, it's like not just music, but you know, quote unquote sound design mm-hmm. or something. You know, mm-hmm. now you're going to have a low mechanical hum. Yeah. You know, um, and the costumes were like sort of cardboard, cubist kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Or what else am I forgetting about parade here? Uh, that's 
I mean, that's the fundamentals of it. Picasso okay. designed the costumes, and they were like cubist costumes. Eric Satie did the music, um, and uh, it was different than anything oh, in the ballet the, that had ever been the, done. And the setting too. There were a couple more things. The setting mm-hmm. was uh, they were they were trying to make this a scandal, mm-hmm. right? They're trying to be like uh, you know uh, Igor Stravinsky, mm-hmm. um, which hopefully people know about that. Um, was the Rite of Spring where there's like a riot when this premieres Stravinsky? Yeah, but um, they didn't quite have that big of a scandal. But it was kind of scandalous, parade because it was um, not your standard kind of um, set and so on. I think, and mm-hmm. then the plot too was like this performing troupe trying to get people to come see their show mm-hmm. which so then it has what we would now call this kind of I don't know meta aspect to it or something like this mm-hmm. anyway this is what apparently Apollinaire felt compelled to describe as right. surrealism yeah. yeah there's something else going on other than just trying to um, satiate the palate of the high art consumer in Europe Mm-hmm. This is, uh, I mean, you had equal, but I, I believe a lot of these events like this, um, at this time, you get equal parts of people in the audience booing and people in the audience in shock, yeah. not believing what they're seeing. And then some people raising an eyebrow like, oh, interesting. I haven't seen this <laughs> yeah. before. It's like, and then, yeah, just like a couple people in the background, like Apollinaire going, this is awesome. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, he's, he's trying, he writes about it and he coins the term surreal in discussing parade. Mm-hmm. And, um, He's he, there's writings later where you hear him talking about he was looking for some other term that was, um, uh, you know, he wanted it first to call it supernatural, but right. supernatural didn't quite do it. Or to be clear in the French, it would be like sore naturalism. Right. right. Like you know. surreal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, just in case supernatural made anyone think of demons or something. Right. Um, so that, 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 that's maybe helpful if we turn to, again, talking about surrealism versus realism mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you could also think of surnaturalism versus naturalism maybe this is somewhat helpful mm-hmm. because realism's a weird term right i mean um i guess realism is a thing um but it's you know a certain kind of disposition or something like this towards reality right so what does it mean to um have a, a, a realist style mm-hmm. it means something though mm-hmm. right well i think this is also what the symbolists are bucking against in a very real way mm-hmm. and where i think poe is trying to just write mysteries but he's kind of stumbling into symbolism where he knows to use symbols and to use analogy and metaphor to try to evoke certain things in you that don't they don't necessarily have to um be at all what he's actually talking about and we see figures like Baudelaire in the Symbolist Movement who's like translates Poe and Poe becomes kind of famous in France right. um, based on this kind of idea uh, through the use of the symbol. So I think when they're when they're pulling from symbolism and futurism and Dada, um, a lot of it is that same thing which you're just describing. It's really like, okay, so we spent 100 years talking about naturalism and realism and, okay, so if what's the next step beyond that? And Yeah, I mean, you have this sense of realism... Um as uh, you know, philosophically, there's the movement of uh, what's often called positivism. Mm-hmm. That cl- clearly, to me, uh, surrealism is um, bucking against or rejecting. Mm-hmm. I mean, which would just be, and you have to think of it's like this kind of um, sober-headed realism, if you like. Mm-hmm. Like, what is real? 
this is could be a this is a huge philosophical question right mm-hmm. but if you go to realism in this more constrained sense or positivism like okay well what's real is what you can fucking verify mm-hmm. right like all right math is true logic is true uh what's true about um the world you know um about reality well can we test it let's use science mm-hmm. right is it scientifically verifiable okay Mm-hmm. Right. So we're counting. There's a tendency then towards materialism and the like. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, a rejection of um, the soul for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. Like prove to me you have a soul. You can't do mm-hmm. that. Right. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> and. So. And of course, along with that, the complete rejection of anything that is not either immediately observable or universally accepted and provable in these materialistic ways that you're talking. Yeah. Which can, you know, for a lot of people's perspectives, puts up a barrier for what we can consider is uh, acceptable behavior and the possibilities of for humanity in the arts and such. Oh, I mean, and potentially it's going to be so boring. Mm-hmm. I, mean, in particular, I mean, this gets into the 20th century a bit and perhaps more in the Anglophone world um, with people like... Um, <clears throat> I'm thinking of, uh, you know, if you have people like Bertrand Russell and there's a whole bunch of other people here in the 20th century, early 20th century, who are really pursuing this idea and thinking about language and then they want to say, okay, well, it's true if it refers to something, right? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't refer to anything, you're talking nonsense. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're reading this as pure philosophy and you're thinking about knowledge and you're thinking about science... You could you could see some appeal. I always feel like there's something weirdly coldly appealing, because someone like Bertrand Russell is like cut out all your nonsense, and that also means for him, you know, your religious notions about God and the afterlife and the soul and like all of this hokum superstition, right? Like he'd go that far. If people aren't familiar with Bertrand Russell, besides making big contributions in the field of logic, he also wrote, for example, a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from a certain point of view, that can be appealing to people. But at the same time, if you're saying, you know, what makes sense depends on what refers to or points to the world, some state of affairs that holds. So let's cut out all the nonsense. Then you are really potentially cutting out poetry and the like as well Mm -hmm. clearly the point of poetry is not to you know make some scientific claim Mm -hmm. so um does it have a point is it pointless you know should we just stop writing poetry stop reading poetry um and i think for someone like um well really all these people we've been talking about that just seems like the world would be unlivable I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, a big thing that would be rejected is uh, this kind of hokum that you're describing is the the entirety of the dream world or the significance of dreams in general. Yeah. I mean, so, but in a common sense way, I think people often tend to think dreams are just, you know, they happen when you're asleep. Maybe sometimes they're entertaining. Sometimes they're scary, but that they're not real. 
not real, but you get a lot of acceptance of them as like moral lessons and ethical guides, even in the classics and you know biblical stories of uh, yeah. You know. But uh, we're moderns; we've got mm-hmm. science, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I just I don't know. I think one of the things surrealism is going to do is buck against the idea that the dream is just something in your head that's not real. Mm-hmm. You know, a whole big part of the thrust is that there's this whole kind of aspect of reality that is in the the dream right and then we're making some kind of mistake if we're just saying no um life is what happens when you're awake mm-hmm. and then what about this other shit mm-hmm. you're just going to tell me that's totally insignificant mm-hmm. and again part of the influence of freud i think is how freud was you know really interested in dreams and how those dreams can bring out um what he calls the unconscious mm-hmm. which we were talking about a bit before right yeah, it's still the brain processing sensory information. So it's thinking. Yeah. Right? So surrealism gets interested in really unconscious thought, right? Mm-hmm. This is one of uh, Breton's definitions about the pure psychic automatism, mm-hmm. or something like this. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, um, there, are, there are two definitions that Breton gives it in the first manifesto. Yeah, you want to um, read that might those be, real quick? might be worth reading through real quick. Um so he gives two definitions. The first one he says is um, surrealism as a noun, pure psychic automatism. This is, of course, translation. Yes. Um, by which it is intended to express verbally in writing or by other means the real process of thought. Yeah. Thought's dictation in the absence of all control exercised by the reason and outside all aesthetic moral preoccupations. Right. So the real exercise of thought. Right. This is why. When you haven't, you know, changed it by putting your um, hang-ups and your ego on yeah. top of it. You're not thinking, you know, should I think this? Mm-hmm. Is it okay to think this? Mm-hmm. Is it pretty? Is it a pretty thought? Right. No. Just it, moral, no moral or aesthetic hang-ups. Try to get at, then explore what he's suggesting there is sort of almost a thought in its pure state. Right. But our conscious mind has actually developed a way to filter it instantly that... Uh, yeah. taints it basically you need, you need to get ways around that if this is what you're interested in because yeah. the conscious mind if we call it that or the ego whatever term you want is precisely um acting as a filter mm-hmm. um, a filter to how i'm viewing what's real and what isn't mm-hmm. um in the manifesto at some point i really love how he phrases it uh this is a paraphrasing but it's something along the lines of you know that consciousness itself is trying to discover itself mm. and that our uh, controlled conscious thought is always hindering that process. Mm-hmm. So until we can, you know, use these kind of methodologies to, you know, um, allow conscious thought itself to truly discover how itself works yeah. without hindrance. Well, and this is where it's sur exactly realism in the sense of being sort of, um, you know, beyond realism, or that's like an expanded realism, right? Like let's let's think about reality as also including dreams, chance occurrences, coincidences, um, all of this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you it, know, like I, when something happens, you say, "Oh, that was just a coincidence." Okay, mm-hmm. um, but maybe it also, from another point of view, seems significant. Mm-hmm. Are we going to just deny the possibility of these kind of weird? synchronicities and the like yeah and furthermore how they see Breton and the others they see a 
way to devise a methodology mm -hmm. to evoke that that untainted thought. And yeah, so well, go to the other definition. Yeah, since we're on the expansive uh, definition, the expansive, the encyclopedic definition, as he says, mm -hmm. um, he defines it uh, not as a noun but as a philosophy itself. Uh, surrealism rests in the belief in the superior reality of certain forms of association neglected heretofore, in the omnipotence of the dream, and in the disinterested play of thought. It tends definitely to do away with all other psychic mechanisms and to substitute itself for them in the solution of the principal problems of life. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's basically saying, "Yeah, this is going to solve it. It's solve, the ultimate yeah. philosophy that will solve all solve problems on planet Earth." Yeah. And it will substitute uh -huh. itself for all other philosophies. Yeah, and it, it's defined from the beginning as involving revolt, subversion, an interest in freedom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, this is a huge claim. It's a huge claim. Yeah. yeah. And so many people, of course, looked at this and said, oh, this is too audacious, whatever. And, you know, maybe all of us have when we first came across it. But I do feel the more I, I – it certainly intrigues me a lot. And mm -hmm. the more I look into it, the more I can really admire that space to – see a bunch of artists getting together and more or less kind of putting, you know, this kind of ethos together where they put up salons and they put up a, a center for surrealism in Paris and they say, come here and, you know, do these automatic uh, automatism activities with us. Mm -hmm. And we're reaching for a higher level of reality by tapping into parts of our minds that we've been trained not to use. That's yeah, sci-fi. That's yeah, fascinating. Right. right. But I mean, without, well, at the same time, you know, at least, you know, trying to avoid mysticism or something like that. Right. Yeah, yeah it's all it's, very scientific um, and all very like, let's talk about it all. Let's document everything. Mm -hmm. But there's the, the rise of different uh, methodologies, right, to try to gain access to this kind of thinking. Right. And a big thing is going to be um, one thing we didn't hit on with Freud was um, free association mm -hmm. in Freud. Mm -hmm. That um, this is, I mean, it gets to the level of an almost uh, the cliche of being at the analyst and laying on the couch, you mm -hmm. know. But the real thing to free associate the methodology that Freud developed here was to say, okay, yeah, lie there and just whatever comes to mind, right? Whatever associations you're making between one thing and another. But this is intended as a um, potential way to try to get the unconscious to slip through, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we're all familiar probably with this um, phrase, uh, you know, Freudian slip. Mm -hmm. It's a parapraxis if we want to be technical about it. Mm -hmm. There's this idea, no, some some unconscious thing has slipped through. You misspoke, right? right. Um, maybe it's that. Or, but then Freud doesn't want to say, you miss, just like, you misspoke, whoopsie. Right. For everyone to say, aha, there's the moment. Yeah. Right. Or it could be something else. You're free associating and then, you know, you hit on a particular thing where it's sort of like what, how did the one thought lead you to another thought or mm -hmm. something like this. But the thing I've always found most fascinating once I discovered this sitting in on some seminars on psychoanalysis and stuff at the new school um, with uh, Professor Alan Bass. I'll go ahead and give him a shout out. Um is that what Freud says the analyst should be doing is free associating. Is also free yeah. associating. Yeah. Not sitting there judging and taking notes mm -hmm. and compelled to try to explain it instantly with uh, their drawing from their experience and education. Right. So the, the analyst isn't supposed to be sitting there going, hmm, I'm on the lookout for something about Mike's mother. 
the the analyst is supposed to be free associating too. Yeah, I love this, and this does dip into that phrase from the manifesto where it's like consciousness trying to find itself. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not, uh, you know, it's really having the therapist uh, free associating. Also, you have two brains trying to dip into yeah. this uh, un- previously unreachable area, and, and then what we sensitive. can glean from that. Yeah, and where, then what you're supposed to do is like be sensitive to that sort of propitious moment mm-hmm. to to stop to intervene. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because potentially you're just going to be silently free associating as an analyst, mm-hmm. but then knowing when to say something, that's part of the skill. Hmm. So it seems like that, you know, with the surrealists, they're, they're picking up on that kind of methodology by taking it outside of a therapeutic context, right? Yeah, they would almost have like parties or whatever mm-hmm. you'd say, where they'd gather a number of people together and they'd try to intentionally evoke, like sort of almost hypnotizing themselves and get themselves into a state, a meditative kind of trance state. And then mm-hmm. they would share phrases and sort of start talking and um, like a freestyle hip hop battle or something. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know, but just trying to kind of create a mess of language that you're not trying to create. Yeah. To this is, um, this is the thing about automatic writing mm-hmm. as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to distinguish this between, um, or from, sorry, you want to distinguish automatic writing that the surrealists were getting into mm-hmm. from um, like free writing, mm-hmm. right? Like I went to a writing camp at one point when I was in high school mm-hmm. at Kenyon College in Ohio, and they would have this free write, you know. Yeah, or I think um, also referred to as stream of consciousness, which is yeah. interesting to call it stream. You know, which in its title is saying stream of consciousness. Yeah, pre- they're going for stream of unconsciousness. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's a kind of a key distinction. Um, there's a difficulty there, of course. Mm-hmm. But free writing would be, you know, or stream of consciousness writing would be, you know, he's like, you know, sit down and just start writing whatever mm-hmm. consciously comes to mind. Right. Um, the idea of automatic writing is to try to, through this process, write from your unconscious without filter. Mm-hmm. The thought is, I mean, so even your sort of free write, Mm-hmm. The, the thought is that that's still being too sort of consciously filtered. Um, yeah, and they're they're seeking ways to do this. They're talking mm-hmm. about writing as soon as you wake up before you realize you're awake yeah. or intentionally trying to fall asleep as you're writing and then that little phase before you actually fall asleep that you don't really know what's going on, but mm-hmm. you're, you're still sort of writing. Yeah, I guess I'm, I was a little worried that I wasn't making it clear enough to people before I mean like mm-hmm. if you think about writing you can think about grammar and, and word order and mm-hmm. does it make sense mm-hmm. right and that's even if you're free writing mm-hmm. it makes sense mm-hmm. right you're, you're, because you're writing from your conscious mind mm-hmm. the the idea is to try to get at these unconscious associations and let those flow correct right, right. like the soluble fish right yeah, soluble fish being um, also it's in you know uh, one of Breton's writings mm-hmm. where it is very much this kind of like uh, tapping into another place in writing. So you can pick any point of it and start reading and say to yourself, "Well, this doesn't make any sense. What are you talking yeah, it's about?" Like I walked down a boulevard made of newspaper or whatever. Right? Or you know you could pick it up and start reading it and realize, okay, there's um, like you said with the analyst who's also free associating. There's mm-hmm. two things happening. I think there's something that you know Ernst and Duchamp or. Um, I think maybe Duchamp was known for stating um, that there's two things happening here that, you know, there's the viewer that's witnessing it is also bringing something to the table. Mm. So if you're reading something like Soluble Fish, then you're the second component in that uh, realization of consciousness realizing itself. And so you can say, oh, Dad, this doesn't make sense to me. 
and that's precisely the point. Mm-hmm. But if you you know you keep reading it, it is it is evoking emotions, it is evoking symbols, and you know references to your own past and everything. Um, so, but there would yeah. be methods also to try to tap into this to help this kind of process along. Yeah, and there were certain players on the game of the Surrealists that were um, actively seeking kind of new ways to do this. Um, maybe that would be collage methods or some mm-hmm. certainly some things like this. Getting to the visual. Yeah. yeah, it also should be noted that Breton at first did not think that the visual would be possible. Like, painters weren't invited to the party at first. Well, it's kind of hard to come up with the same sort of rules. So, I mean, with automatic writing, he'll say things like, you know, write, you know, whatever. And, and uh, I recall one point where I'll say, you know, then um, the next word, uh, just make it start with whatever letter. No, it should certainly be an F mm-hmm. or something like this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, trying to insert little bits of technique. Mm-hmm in order to get that unconscious thought going. Mm-hmm. And the question is, well, how can you do the same sort of thing visually? But right. they came up with some methods, right? Yeah, there were there were a few, like Max Ernst is maybe credited as being one of the early, and Masson too, Andre mm-hmm. Masson, uh, as early um, visual artists that joined the movement and really were fairly representing the movement and accepted by the, the course realists. And what was but, the thing they did with, like, the, you take a piece of paper and a chalk? And yeah, frottage. Frottage, where, yeah. Where you could take a pe- piece of paper and a chalk and put it over anything and sort of chalk out the texture underneath, and you could maybe fold or crumble your paper before you did that. But then after you did it, you look at it and say, okay, now this is what I see in it. And then you could continue to work on it and then mm-hmm. sort of pull out what the painting wanted to become. That was definitely one method. Um, yeah. Uh, collage uh, or uh, decal, I forget uh, the, the full French term for it, but basically what we know as decal arts um, would yeah. uh, basically be another method for doing that. Well, and you also get some like automatic sketching. Like Exquisite cool. Corpse. Yeah, we have the exquisite. It was corpse, very fascinating. Um, you fold up a piece cool. of paper, and um, you have somebody draw the top part, the head to the shoulders, or whatever yeah. the example is, and then fold and hide fold and it pass over it. And, hide it. and then at the end of the um, day, you see like, okay, here's a study in a painting that none of us could have made on our own. Yeah. We made it together, but because we had no frame of reference as we were doing our part of it, it could fairly be considered something that was not a conscious decision to make. Right, but aren't there also, even as one person, this kind of attempt to say, you know, put pen or pencil to paper or whatever and just start sketching without thinking yeah, about it? Yeah, I think that's that's big in Masson's work. Yeah. That you can see that. It's squiggly lines that sort of end up telling him what they're becoming. It's kind of like doodling and being really good at it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I, I really like this stuff. I went to this... Um, a few years ago, there was a, a little exhibit of surrealist drawings here, mm-hmm. uh, I think, at the Morgan Library. Is mm-hmm. that right? Okay. We're on 23rd Street. Okay. Anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think that's where it was. Uh, but it was just a little exhibit of surrealist drawings, and I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Lots, lots of fish, too. Yeah, there's definitely a recurring <laughs> theme of fish. Um, but I also, like, we mentioned soluble fish a bit ago, and we talked about this the other day where... Um, itself as a juxtaposition of two ideas of the fish that lives in an environment of water right on its own is you know a fish surviving in an environment but the idea of it being soluble yeah means right like water soluble like the water itself would absorb it and although water might do that given enough time to yeah. anything well it's but it's, it's it like kind of defeats still, the purpose of a fish yeah the soluble fish is a sort of contradictory object or something like that mm-hmm. and i think that um, part of what's interesting is that it's not in terms of the surrealist p- 
poetry, if we want to call it that, mm -hmm. that you're getting these images operating and the like, but they're really not metaphors, technically. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, you know, to emphasize a sort of etymology, I guess. Okay. A metaphor would involve sort of carrying one thing over to another, like, say, carrying a concept in one domain over to another domain, this sort of thing. Okay. Um, I mean, look, metaphors are cool, fine, right? Um, but what you get instead is, again, as we, you know, looking at that definition of surrealism from Breton, there's at least the idea that what you're doing is you're exploring thought. You're exploring a kind of becoming in thought. Mm -hmm. So maybe a term like metamorphosis is more appropriate. It's a changing in form mm -hmm. rather than like taking this fully formed concept in one area and putting it in another area. Mm -hmm. That distinction making sense? Yeah. Well, uh, it's also makes me think of like in early literature class where they say the difference between simile and metaphor, right? A simile, you say, oh, it's like or it's as. Yeah. But a metaphor, you're saying this is that. Yeah, but even then, it's almost, it's just like a really linguistic distinction. Right, and know? I'm still maybe struggling a little bit to kind of see exactly. Well, it also brings up the symbolist idea yeah. that, of like, okay, so using a symbol to say this is death. I mean, but it's, it's, it's not, but yeah. you, you get all of what I'm trying to say when I substitute that idea. How about let's go back to the fish. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. I could write a poem that begins, the fish was like an ice cube. Okay. If you put it into water, it would melt. It would dissolve. Okay. Right. This is not, you, you're getting something different going on when you just say soluble fish. Yeah. Right. Like it's not. You know, because, say, you know what it's like for something to be soluble and dissolve in water, and you can take that and apply it in another context. It's, um, I mean, I guess in part it is almost a linguistic structure. It's, you're not even saying the fish um, is soluble. I mean, I guess that wouldn't be a metaphor either. Is it in a percolator? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the fish is in the percolator. <laughs> well, okay, so this um, is brings up also one of the big methods is that they're talking about is juxtaposition. Yes. And it's stated that good, good. the further apart the two things you're juxtaposing, the greater the truth might be when you put them together. Yeah. And so in this sense, I feel like soluble fish is the perfect kind of um, idea, the perfect symbol for relating a lot. And when we had this discussion before, the, another thing this reminds me of is... Um, uh, hieroglyphics, actually, Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yeah, this was interesting. We because this is this. like an mm. iconographic language, right? It's based on symbols, but there's a whole understanding that it's kind of like a top-down language where each icon itself will represent everything that that icon can represent, and it only trims down into a, a higher form uh, of understanding and meaning when you start adding other symbols. So yeah. at its nature, it's a language of juxtaposition. Which is a different type of thinking than yeah. piecing together letters that you've already been trained what they mean um, once they're words. Yeah, and you were telling me a little bit about this the other day. I think it might be helpful for you to say a little bit more. I think the example you gave the other day had to do with a hawk to me. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, like if you if you work? see a single symbol in hieroglyphics of uh, a hawk, let's say, mm -hmm. then that represents flight. It represents hunt. It represents vision. You know, it's going to represent a, a very large amount of yeah, things. Like all of these things at the same time. Yeah, and point. so yeah. if you're if you're giving somebody a letter that's just got a hawk in it, that you know person might very well say, "Oh, well, what are you talking about?" <laughs> you know, but for ancient Egyptians who were educated in this, and this was the language that they knew in a whole sentence, then you would add a hawk that would have. Uh, maybe a vase next to it, and then the next to the vase would be some scales, and then you would realize, like, 
you know, okay, so this is one of the places that you can go to buy feathers or something, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a totally inaccurate example. Yeah, but, you just made that up. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, but That's the idea fine. that, you know, that you could string together the symbols mm-hmm. and that at each level of adding another symbol, the juxtaposition became uh, a, a more identifiable truth about what was being said. Yeah. But that each of the symbols on their own could be totally expansive and represent anything. Yeah, For, I love you know, this. and when I you think... juxtapose that idea with the idea of the other modern languages that are like kind of like bottom up where you build mm-hmm. uh, an agreed upon meaning for certain words and then string them together. It's actually it's very interesting to me. That's that's a totally different way of thinking. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, there definitely is a connection here with surrealism insofar as um, you, you kind of are you're getting the thought that consciousness um logic whatever all this stuff it's paring down reality mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and the surrealists wanted to explore or surrealists want to explore the broader kind of um aspects of thought mm-hmm. right um what is there in the unconscious what is there in dreams mm-hmm. but then also um, thinking about this ultimately as um, kind of a way of life, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just a. So it's certainly not just about art, mm-hmm. but then it's also not just about philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's ultimately about how to live, mm-hmm. which I might say is also still philosophy. But when I say it's not just about philosophy, it's not just like academic, is what I mean. Yeah, and right? how to live, how to think. How mm-hmm. to expand how how you think and a freedom of thought. Yeah, right. The the emphasis very on, key on freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another um, f- method that uh, the surrealists really loved was um, using the non sequitur. Yeah. Right. So this is something I really love the idea of. It's like so you're stating something that's wrong intentionally for the purpose of having a broader understanding of a circumstance when a thing is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like a staring into the negative space of an image to help you draw the positive space of the image or something, which is, you know, a big methodological thing in, in visual arts, right? And with, um, that you put me in mind of Lost Raymond again, mm-hmm. um, who died when he was 24, by the way. Mm-hmm. Man. Wow, yeah. Yeah, if I, only I could have been that influential mm-hmm. uh, by the age of 24. Mm-hmm. Well, he wasn't, he didn't know it when he was alive either, so. Mm-hmm. I don't know what fun it is to be influential after you're dead. But um, but when he died, he was apparently working on another book that was supposed to be like Chance of the Good, mm-hmm. right? So Malador is like Chance of Evil or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he at least had left some notes, some sketches about this, but this notion of having to go through um, the evil to get to the good or something. Right, something he was like highly that. criticized for showing this kind of dark side and such. But yeah, in his notes you see that where he's yeah. saying, wait, no, this is the reason I'm setting all this up is because of the goal, which is all, is also like a very in-depth mystery where you go through the darkness to see the light or something. Mm, something like that, yeah. Yeah, but the two weren't um, separate. It wasn't like he was festering in the darkness for, for darkness' sake. Right. Um, and, you know, combining that with kind of the such like kind of lush imagery and everything mm. and also breaking the rules and, you know, um, evoking, uh, you know, uh, kind of like the subversive kind of thing that people aren't used to, 
I think was it was that was huge for the surrealist scene. Yeah, and that you're talking about non sequiturs and the like. We were talking about the use of language, and you know, you, you mentioned the famous sentence earlier, right, about the sewing machine, mm-hmm. right? So that kind of thing, the surrealists were trying to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it, it doesn't follow logically, mm-hmm. but it's not complete nonsense, right? And I, I love this actually when it's when it is juxtaposed with other cultures that aren't necessarily brought up and discussed by the surrealists or as far as my limited understanding of them maybe there was some that that pushed this but uh that idea reminds me of some like zen buddhist koans when i Mm -hmm. think about what i've studied in japanese buddhism and the stories and some woodblock paintings and the idea that you'll go to a master and say master show me what is the the nature of existence and tell me the secret and the master hits you on the head with his bamboo stick or whatever you know and um so there's, it's like this kind of thought experiment thing where it's not immediately accessible with a conscious mind. And it seems the lesson in there in Zen Buddhism also, amongst all these koans and lessons from masters, is this um, to train oneself to reach a higher level of thinking about something. And, and there are several reasons that one might do that in that tradition to avoid pitfalls and to avoid you know, uh, false understandings of reality basically is a big deal. And so mm-hmm. you can't teach somebody that with some words. So, but what seems effective in that lineage is to share with them uh, some sort of thought experiment, some nonsensical um, story yeah. that um, won't make sense to you until you're falling asleep that night later and some random negative space thought about the story hits you. And yeah. then, boom, you've got this higher understanding well, of reality. That's, uh, and it's like dream logic. You know, mm-hmm. and exploring what we might want to call dream logic mm-hmm. that they're really interested in. I think in various ways, yeah, you can definitely see that. And as you say, in Buddhism, koans, and and so on. There's, but then what's going? I, even if you think about that phrase, dream logic, mm-hmm. this would be connections and thought mm-hmm. that are not. It's not logic, logic, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not ruled by the same kind of. Um, you know, the law of non-contradiction and so on. It's a different sort of thing that's at play. Mm-hmm. But things can click there too. Right. You know what I mean? It's not for nothing that we'll talk about um, sleeping on it. Mm-hmm. You've got a decision to make, yeah, maybe go home and sleep on it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, you might just figure it out while you're fucking asleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that yeah. is a common phrase, right? Yeah. But how often do you actually think about the implication yeah. that it's actually saying you might decide about this when you're fucking sleeping? Yeah, that's good. Uh, I love it. Yeah. And there's um, a lot to be said about, uh, again, another culture that is not necessarily talked about when talking about you know European surrealism is um, in Tibetan culture, you have the concept of uh, dream yoga. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Mahayana tradition and Tibetan monks will actually say there's a, a way to kind of focus and train yourself to become lucid in your dreams. Yeah. And one of the key concepts of that that they'll teach you to do is you have the capability to do this by bringing the two worlds together, exactly what Breton is talking about here, uh, conscious and unconscious minds. And to bring the dream world closer to your reality you uh, and to have a lucid dream, one of the uh, ways to do that, to practice to do that, is to start to view your own reality, your waking reality, as more like a dream. Yeah. So the more you view your waking reality as a dream, the more your dream reality will become like your waking state where you'll be conscious. And there's a very specific lineage of like yoga to teach oneself to go to sleep 
wake up in your dream body mm-hmm. and have a whole different reality, which sounds totally far-fetched in sci-fi. But there are practitioners that pre- that preach this, that, that claim that they can do it. They've trained themselves to do this every single night. And we all, if we're lucky, most of us hopefully, have at one point or another in our lives had a lucid dream where at some point in the dream you kind of know you're dreaming and that mm. feeling in a dream that you do have control. Yeah. Whether or not you know what's going on or whether or not it's full conceptual control. I mean, we've all had that moment in a, that when we wake up from a dream they say, oh, yeah, I want to, you know, or maybe let me ask, have you had that moment where you've been in a dream, <laughs> you've wo- you've woken from the dream and thought, oh, I better get back to that dream so I can finish what was happening. Oh, yeah, that absolutely. You know, and yeah. and I think um, it's hard to pin it down because the way, you know, conscious thought and memory works. But I think I have actually been able to successfully get back <laughs> to a dream and continue on a dream after knowing that I woke up from it. Yeah. And I and I have had a lucid dream where I've been in that recurring you know, back to the dream and identifying like, oh yeah, I'm asleep right now. Hmm. And that is, that's is very, very strange um, conscious state to be in. You're conscious, but you're unconscious. And we know that several uh, cultures have dealt with this in certain ways. And then we have um, in, in Western tradition of psychology and Freud breaking it down into very kind of scientific terms. And then we have this movement of people who are like, wait, yeah, that's the stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's hone that skill. Yeah. And we believe if we do, it will be the fundamental answer to solving all the problems in the world. Great. And this so, is this is great. I love it. I'm really I love in it. love well, with this. And idea. the idea of freedom, and this is something I think we might talk about more next time we sit down, is the political dimension of surrealism. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is this question, you know, particularly at the beginning with the first manifesto. Mm-hmm. Breton, the surrealists, are kind of accused of a certain kind of idealism right. or something like this. And, right. and the, the, there's going to be all these tensions with... Um, communism and right so if you're thinking about freedom mm-hmm. you know one thing to start talking about freedom of thought and so on but hey you know this is what the communists of the time would say they'd be like hey don't you maybe need to be like materially free first yeah you know don't, don't we need to you know kind of unchain humanity from the shackles of you know class oppression and mm-hmm. things like this mm-hmm. uh isn't that the you know first battle anyway um but you do also have um, Nadia, the book, mm-hmm. right? And that getting at the level of um, trying to sort of live this way, where I think there's at least some kind of tenuous connection we could draw with, with what you were saying about um, dream yoga and the like, right? Uh, oh, treating, I, I totally feel like this treating, is one of those yeah, Cohen's, like the idea of waking like, life like a dream, more like a dream. Yeah, that's that's definitely in there with the character like noticing synchronicities and you know mm-hmm. in in that state of mind. But also in general, I I do feel like Nadia is kind of Breton's Cohen. It's mm. like there's a way, and of course, as you pointed out earlier, this is something that is claimed to have actually happened. That Nadia yep. is a real person mm-hmm. that we know who is, and Breton is as well, and he's incorporating yeah. and talking about all the other people he's running into. Yes, yeah, so. but it is it is like a narrative structure, like a story that illustrates mm-hmm. the lesson of the philosophy. Yeah, so people will call it a novel, or some of you will call it an autobiographical novel. Mm-hmm. But um, Breton, at least, was claiming this happened, mm-hmm. and uh, with some corroboration. So, to what extent it's an accurate um, account? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I thought it was a really interesting book. Um, and also because it does seem like he's very interested in. Um, synchronicity or objective chance or whatever term we want to use there precisely 
Well, he actually, I think, talks about and uses the phrase of objective chance, mm -hmm. whereas yeah, synchronicity is more a Jungian thing, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, but this idea of synchronicity being like, oh, almost like a mystery, like you're on the right path or something when you see these kind of, you know, synch synchronous things happen. But there's this question of like, is this something more that I'm just noticing that always happens? Or is this something I'm causing to happen because I'm aware? Well, and part of what I like is about in Nadia is that Breton himself is so recognizing of the ambiguity, mm -hmm. right? So think about some coincidence. Okay, so people, if people aren't familiar with the book, you get things like um, she stands him up for a date and then he runs into her on the street mm -hmm. or something like this, right? Or just like they keep running into one another or these, these things. A gesture um, of a hand or the color of the curtains or, yeah. Yeah, there's a thing, right? Um, the person he the bumps into and then later becomes his friend. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, exactly. It's, um, it's just filled with that, yeah. It's one of those kind of synchronous events after the next, really. And when that's what he's interested in. Mm -hmm. But he seems like he's not, he himself seems to be dwelling with the ambiguity of it. Mm -hmm. He's saying, this is something we need to explore. Mm -hmm. Like, is it nothing? Is it just a coincidence? Mm -hmm. You know, I guess you could take that approach if you want to, you know, mm -hmm. dear sober reader or whatever. Um, you know, is it like some mystical thing? And like, eh, certainly not. We're ruling out the like super thick hypothesis almost from the beginning, it seems. Mm -hmm. But um, what happens? And I think, I hope, I imagine that people have had experiences like this. Mm -hmm. Just something seems serendipitous. Yeah, you know, there's there's some weird um, coincidence, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I remember um, my dad telling me the story even of like he was leaving the house and for no reason he could quite identify, he grabbed a marker. Mm -hmm. Didn't usually carry a marker around, and then like later in the day, he had a use for that marker. Mm -hmm. Which is, this is a really small thing, but I bet people potentially didn't believe what I just said. Like, did that really happen? Did your dad really need a pen that day? <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that's kind of, a, yeah, insignificance in the example, but. There's um, an insignificance in the example. When my dad tells a story, he, you know, he, he wants to make, draw a, a thicker conclusion from what, it. What did he need the marker for? What was the I don't remember. <laughs> he needed to, you know, like write on some um, board or something It wasn't something the like day that. he met no, it was like Lou totally, Costello and he's got his signatures no, on it. it was a totally minor thing mm -hmm. where it just, ha I mean, it was just, it just happened to be the case that marker that he didn't normally carry around came in handy. Yeah, okay, yeah. And so... When he tells the story, he says, oh, I guess that's why I brought that marker. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, he's he's, he's mm -hmm. imbuing it with some purpose. Mm -hmm. Whereas Breton makes clear in Nadia that he's ruled out that kind of teleological hypothesis from the beginning. Mm -hmm. he's, he doesn't think there's purpose. Right. Right. Telos. Mm -hmm. uh, in, that, in that sort of way. But I think, you know, if you think about your life, I, you know, I guess I would expect for most people, there can be weird little things like that that happen. And the question is, do you write it off as just some kind of coincidence or do you take it to be significant? Yeah. And it's it's one of those things I think you can both say it's coincidental and if I notice it and look for it, I'm going to find it everywhere. There's the number recursion mm -hmm. thing that has led to some people going a little bit too far with the mm -hmm. belief in synchronicities. Mm -hmm. 47 
Um, yeah, there, there's that thing. Yeah, yeah, I think we discussed that before also. But, um, you know, and then there's um, uh, interpretation of one's own life and mm. recurring themes that can affect how we think about things. And I'm, I'm sure that there's some psychoses out there that will describe, you know, certain people that have not been able to get past that idea that there are these recurring synchronicities and therefore either my life is controlled or um, things are predetermined, there's no free will. I mean, I think there's a lot of rabbit holes that that kind of leading can go down into. Yeah, there are different ones. I mean, another one, though, is to think of this as um, uh, these being these uh, kind of propitious moments or something, right? Mm -hmm. You have this ancient Greek notion of um, time in terms of kairos, Mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, this is the chance kind of thing, Mm -hmm. right? Kronos would just be, yeah, it's one thing after another. Mm-hmm. Kairos would be this kind of like propitious moment, mm-hmm. opening or something. Um, like it's your chance. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jung, you mentioned um, Jung and synchronicity and the connection there. Of course, Carl Jung did get a bit mystical, mm-hmm. I guess. But um, his account, he's thinking about synchronicity as potentially having a psychoanalytic or therapeutic function. Mm-hmm. So he has this account of a patient who's talking about this um, dream that's involving a scarab beetle mm-hmm. and um, noticing something flitting against the window like it's trying to get in while his patient's you know, telling him about this beetle, mm-hmm. noticing that it's a beetle, mm-hmm. opening the window and grabbing it, and then at a certain moment going, here's your beetle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True story? He says it's a true story. Mm-hmm. But and his claim further is that 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 precisely broke through the kind of resistance to analysis that he'd been getting from this patient. Okay, like now we can work. Yeah, this person's been resisting. We haven't been getting anywhere, but that this synchronicity mm-hmm. of me being able to, and again, it's just like he's claiming that he grabbed the beetle that flew in the window. Mm-hmm. Um, that the synchronicity of being able to go here's your scarab. That that's Opened fascinating. Door. That's yeah. that's fascinating. I've experienced stuff like that that was a little bit beyond reason to think mm-hmm. that the cards aligned a certain way for yeah. certain experiences. But it does make one think like, oh, okay, maybe my logic mind isn't getting everything here. If something like that can happen, yeah, which opens that door. Mm-hmm. And there's also the concept of the collective unconscious, right? In Jung, yeah. Mm-hmm. So in you know, if you factor that into kind of all these things that we're talking about, if there's an unconscious mind that needs to discover itself and be more a pragmatic part of how we live and think, and it's collectively connected behind the scenes, then you're talking about like a, a full-blown um, expansive neural network that we all share and have to turn the button on you know, this is where it becomes like yeah, Professor that, X kind of matrix That's matrix-y. where it gets mystical. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. And I don't know that um, uh, it, it, it seems more like an open question for um, the surrealists, but mm-hmm. at least for Breton in particular, uh, he, he would seem to resist that kind of um, mm-hmm. potential mysticism. Right. But, but there's different ways of thinking about this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, maybe it's not a collective unconscious – but maybe my unconscious and your unconscious communicate with one another, mm-hmm. right? Things like this, right? I mean, with Jung, it really starts to seem like there is some pervading unconsciousness that, you know, cuts right. across all beings. The and, force. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Pers- oh, my God. Actually, 
you know how dead on that is, yeah. don't you? Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That, I mean, if people don't know, it was basically Carl Jung inspiring Joseph Campbell yeah. and George Hero Lucas. With a thousand faces. Getting inspired yeah. by Joseph Campbell and going, I'm going to make this a Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Pretty explicitly. Right. Yeah. But um, so another thing referring back to Nadia that um, really gets me. So we have this world of kind of synchronicities and, and it seems sort of like a, a sort of dream world that is the real world if you look with the right eyes. But the thing that I walk away from, Nadia, when I really am thinking back on it, it seems that he's identifying this woman, right, who kind of gets what they're talking about philosophically, mm-hmm. who knows to look at the trees and, and glean from how the wind is blowing through the trees certain things that most people won't get and has sort of a deeper, higher plane of existence, if you will, and and it goes along with the kind of philosophies of the movement. Mm-hmm. But in, in essence, I kind of, after the book is over, I look at it and I say, but what a tragedy yeah. because the the kind of what happens to Nadia, right? And how yeah. it's too much for our modern um, society in this way that um, that kind of free thinking leads you to, you know, bars to being yeah, is, is locked she, up. Was she mentally ill? And this brings yeah. us full circle to talking about psychiatry psychology and mm-hmm. you know the basically at, at what point can you judge another's um way of thinking and you know she gets locked up yeah and it doesn't even specifically say exactly what she's doing but there's some sort of free thinking action she's taking in her hallway of her building that the neighbors see that he refers to and that was like mm-hmm. kind of too much and it causes her to get locked up you don't know exactly what it is um, throughout the story, you get these hints of like how she survives and lives off of him helping her out, off of other men, off of some old old man with a lot of experience that's been taken as a friend of hers. Yeah. And she does hint at some moments of the possibility of like prostitution being something like that. Yeah, I think but so. Ber- Breton yeah. doesn't go so far as to like tarnish who she is as an image with that. But you, you can tell that he's got this realization. There's a moment that's um, kind of a graphic moment where she gets... Uh, uh, punched in the nose and she's bleeding, right? Mm. That is like too much for Breton where he has to back off and say, yeah. you know, okay, now you're killing the kind of illusory, illusory yeah. image that I have saying, of I don't you. Want you to tell him. He almost wishes she didn't tell him yeah. some of this stuff. She's becoming too real now. Mm-hmm. And he sort of hints at that too when he's describing that she's now locked up in, in the asylum. But, mm-hmm. what, you know, what a tragedy that he has to witness this kind of angelic force of thought that is truly free and truly is able to like is not amazed by the coincidences, um, but understands like, you know, very factually that that's how life is. That's how human minds are, who has a heightened awareness of things like she knows when there's a tunnel under them and it could be the vibration of the train going on or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. there's certain t- moments when they're at a cafe where she hints that, you know, she has this higher awareness of their circumstances, their environment itself, like a heightened sense of awareness and thought. And so what does society do with somebody that's that liberated of thought? It's too much. And she gets locked away. And, you know, it's it's tragic in that sense. You know? Yeah, I mean, of course, there are a couple of questions. And, I mean, one is about how accurate Breton's portrayal is. He's putting mm-hmm. forward a certain image of Nadia, certainly. Right. Uh, I'm sure um, you could read it um, a little negatively in terms of a feminist critique or something, mm-hmm. potentially. Yeah. You know, because it is kind of Breton being like, I'm so inspired by this woman who could have been mentally ill. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I think to, to what you're getting at, it gets at a potentially difficult question for the movement. 
um, or in terms of thinking about surrealism now, if we're talking about um, opening up a space to thought sort of beyond logic, right? Thinking from the unconscious mind. Uh, if there's um, curiosity or experimentation, or thinking about objective chance and synchronicity, living your life in a way that also is giving space to dreams and giving significance to dreams and maybe um, maybe living your waking life like you're dreaming to some extent or th that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Is there a risk of madness there? Mm -hmm. I, was, I guess is, is one question. Mm -hmm. It's a real question, potentially. Yeah. Um, and so we've reached up to the point where we have... Uh, discussed Breton's first manifesto and Nadia. Um, we've talked a little bit about um, where surrealism kind of comes from and its mm -hmm. roots. Um, I think a couple other discussions that we will have after this uh, podcast that we're in right now will be discussing some of the second manifesto, uh, the other mm -hmm. artists that joined the movement. You talk about madness and we haven't even talked about Dali at all, yeah, which yeah, is a little bit reversed from where yeah. usually the lesson in surrealism starts. Yeah, um, But we're going to tackle that. We will talk about Dali um, and I'm, I'm, a number of other artists as well. And I'm in particular looking forward to talking about the political dimension. Yep. We haven't and, touched on uh, Trotsky or communism that much or the Marxist influence, really. Yeah. And the falling out with Dali is going to be part of that discussion, mm -hmm. too. Right? Exactly. So maybe fair enough that we're putting off our conversation about Dali for the moment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in all likelihood, probably some further things about what we were yeah, just we, Yeah, we should talk about the, uh -huh. the, how things change, how some people come, some people go. Breton redefines the movement. Mm -hmm. He has a, um, a moment where basically he starts from scratch and he, you know, basically, you know... Um, changes up everything and kicks a bunch of people out. Well, yeah, it seems like he was really, really concerned about surrealism me, uh, remaining surrealism as he thought about it. Mm -hmm. Like precisely, go, to go back to where we started at the beginning of the podcast, mm -hmm. that people will talk about surrealism like it's just weird. Yeah. Like, hey, it's weird art. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it is, sure. So it's weird art. Mm -hmm. But that Breton was like, no, surrealism's not just about people making weird art. Mm -hmm. Surrealism is the whole thing, right? Yeah. And that encyclopedic definition. Right. On the path of it being a solution to, you know, the problems of humanity, mm -hmm. you know. So um, some concern with kind of keeping that um, purity, I guess you might want to mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Yeah, and with a lot of things that sometimes um, escape a really concise definition, surrealism is one of those things that maybe requires more than one definition, as he's mm -hmm. stating here. Um, so that also reminds me of, uh, we touched on Jari a little bit ago, but uh, Jari's pataphysics, we didn't yeah. even mention. The idea of pataphysics itself. Uh, the what the science of um, uh, illogical conclusions, I think, <laughs> yeah. basically. I think um, of it almost as Imaginary like conclusions, I think. Um, it's supposed to be beyond metaphysics to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're going even further into the um, the study of um, imaginary objects, mm -hmm. right? Metaphysics has been um, often defined as uh, like the study of the ultimate nature of reality um, within philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. And pataphysics, um, his idea, this is back in the 19th century, right? So before surrealism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but with his idea of pataphysics, he's like, well, wait a minute. You can't just study reality. You've also got to study the imaginary, right? Yeah. 
And in this sense, pataphysics is supposed to be beyond metaphysics, where metaphysics is beyond physics. But I I do love this kind of like Um, seeking into these, um, some would say unreasonable, and maybe that's a proper term for it, but uh, like trying to put a science onto uh, non-reason, which reminds me in science where you have the idea of a control group. Mm -hmm. And if what you're studying is how the brain thinks and uh, awareness and reality and thought, then how can you understand how you're thinking unless you kind of change the parameters of how you think? And this is, you know, concepts of what they're trying to do, but this is also practiced uh, later um, with, like, you know, certain psychotropic drugs and such. Hmm. Um, But then if you can change the parameters of how you think, Hmm. and uh, then, you know, this is maybe like a Timothy Leary thing or something, uh, but then you can scientifically start to study how the mind works by changing the parameters and then coming back and saying, okay, our control group is this, and when, then when you change parameters this way, you get these results. Okay. But, you know, before you have kind of like, uh, you know, modern scientific techniques and um, further understanding of uh, chemical alterations of the brain and such like that, um, you still have this field of study that's, that start, stems from, you know, poetry, basically, and, mm. you know, using all these other theories. So it's, um, it's pretty fascinating. I think Jerry was one of those figures that was kind of bigger than life also. Well, um, it's, yeah, and it's, it's, there's, it's, there's an interesting expansion going on, right? Because it's, what are we, we're thinking, what, we're thinking about thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, this is philosophy. Mm-hmm. Go back to Aristotle, you know, thought, thinking itself. Yeah. Mm, great. But, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, for the most part, at least in Western philosophy, um, at least philosophy was defined by being very, like logical, very rational, right? You're after the truth, you're after knowledge or what have you. Um, There are some exceptions to that. And of course, some things that happen at the margins and so on and so forth. But it really does seem to me it's in latter half of the 19th century forward, people start getting more and more interested in like nonsense, Mm -hmm. you know, the imaginary objects becomes a big question, Mm -hmm. like the status of imaginary objects. and of course, and one, one big thing in the background of this is that God is dead, mm-hmm. right? Right. We didn't even touch on that <laughs> um, with Nietzsche and 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 so mm-hmm. on, and how that, I mean, and how that takes hold, sort of, right? I mean, all the stuff going on in the 19th century in terms of the critiques of religion, of uh, God, um, of um, you know that phrase god is dead mm-hmm. you know i think it's often misunderstood i actually kind of laughed you know there's this movie called god's not dead mm. have you heard of this no it's like a movie put out by evangelicals or something okay and you know they're trying to like it's oh. like oh there's a college professor <laughs> who stays atheist you know they like one of the students is like oh god's not dead i'm gonna prove it to you anyway um but I saw, I was on Twitter, and there was an ad, uh, I guess they're making a sequel to this fucking thing, and there was an ad for, like, God's Not Dead too. Um, you mean also? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was like, what do you believe? Right. It's such a fundamental misunderstanding Yeah, I believe that you have fundamentally misunderstood <laughs> yeah. what the point uh, of that was. I believe yeah. you have fundamentally misunderstood the phrase, God is, not, God is dead. Yeah. Because um, it's one thing to say there is no God. Okay, that's atheism. Mm-hmm. God is dead means the concept is dead. Mm-hmm. We that we can no longer believe. So it's really 
it's a motto if anything it's a motto for nihilism not atheism mm-hmm. you know the overarching and narratives they're dead mm-hmm. the idea that there's some god in charge god has a plan everything happens for a reason mm-hmm. what nietzsche is saying is no one can really believe that anymore yeah you can say it yeah. but you can't really buy it yeah go back to the middle ages you could buy it Mm-hmm. Right, everyone thought the Earth's at the center of the universe. All the planets go around the Earth, yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. But we're decentered by Copernicus, Galileo, and so on. We're we're science keeps decentering us. Mm-hmm. Can you really believe at this point that this little species that evolved on this little planet in this little corner of this little solar system of this little galaxy in this immensely vast universe? is special Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a whole other segment of hours of discussion that we could honestly get into because you know and i love it and that's fascinating too um but it is something to question about to those that would stand up today and argue that and make that film like in your heart of hearts do you really believe that's a that's a heavy question it's and a tough so, one. Yeah, it is a tough one. But that's something that we might address at some point in the future, too. But well, and I think there's some connection because it, in that whole historical background, kind of conceptually, <coughs> when you're coming to um, surrealism, it's still... Everyone's grappling with these questions about meaning, meaningfulness and purposefulness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, you know what, what life is about and... Uh, Revolution. Do we need a revolution? Do we need a revolution in thought? Um, and all of this kind of stuff. And I guess, from my point of view, I think all of these questions are very much alive. And, I mean, now, in 2018, I think these questions are still alive. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. maybe we've just gotten distracted by um, things like television. Mm-hmm. And there's some segments of media and communications out there that are still, as we are here now, discussing it. Um, and I think one of the things that um, you make me think of as we're describing all of this stuff is, you know, around that time, let's say, from World War One on, we also, through all these kind of revolutions in thought, start to get into the canon like um, a whole bounty of really... Um, kind of um, speculative fiction, right? We get science fiction, we get fantasy, we get horror, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of explodes into what today is is a, a major part. I mean, we're talking about everything from, you know, uh, young young leading into Star Wars or whatever. Yeah. Um, or, you know, the influence of people like Lovecraft or whatnot. Um, and so, you know, it's really interesting to me that the seeds that are planted during the Surrealist movement and before that we've discussed... Um, are kind of like full fruit-bearing plants today. Hmm. And so, you know, our previous podcast was one of those. Yeah. And I think that we've gotten back to this subject looking for the seeds from enjoying the fruit of that plant. And, um, you know, it's it's very interesting to me to be able to go back and see that uh, this this uh, these ideas, revolutionary ideas, um, cutting away from the mainstream, looking at the negative spaces of things, looking for logic beyond logic is still very, very important to us as a species to figure things out, to figure out how to think, to mm. figure out how to live. And so in that sense, I um, back when we were doing our other podcast, I kept thinking that the return was somehow a therapeutic event. Yeah. And so I think even now after this discussion and the further one that we'll have, 
um, I, I think it supports that even more so. That indeed, it's not just um, empty words. That the arts and that creative thinking is very much um, uh, the life force of of progressive humanity is something that is there that we need. Yeah, and, and that you should need be you know life as. Not a separation, too, right here. Not a separation between art and life. Not thinking about art as something you do apart from your life, mm-hmm. right? I think that's why you'll see Breton and others sometimes to claim against the idea of art or the idea of literature. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that it's rejecting that kind of separation. Right. Like, oh, I'm a guy who has a life, and hey, I happen to write books. Yeah. No. Right. The Breton's like, no, the what I'm writing is all of a piece with my surrealist right. life in general. Right. Right. And you see that as a recurring theme throughout the people that have inspired surrealism as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating, uh, subject. You know, when we first decided to start talking about it, we realized uh, how expansive it is. And I think we could eat for the amount of time we've been talking now, just during this uh, sit down, I think we could equally spend that much time on every single name that we've mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I'm you know, sure we you, could. If you're yeah. talking about picking mm-hmm. up Picabio or Jari or Baudelaire and Rimbaud, you know, there's a there's a thousand names that it's like, yes, go and take the time to look into that person and their art. We're just here, you know, discussing all of this, so we can't show you uh, any mm-hmm. of the visual elements or anything. Yeah. But it's all out there for grabs, you know, and uh, we definitely suggest digging into that the way that we're kind of digging back for those seeds that were planted so long ago. Yeah, and hopefully we haven't dropped too many names on you if you aren't familiar with them. But, uh, you know, we may try to put some links in the comments on this thing or something yeah. like that for people. And we've only begun too because yeah. there's a whole younger <laughs> well, movement of way more names next time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're <laughs> Stay tuned name, kids. More names. Name dropping all over the place. <laughs> but it's, it's true that there's this whole other younger move, new wave of uh, younger artists that come in to the surrealist movement um, that have not experienced the war. Mm. And so you get the origins of it being very grounded in the war and this reaction to logic that brought you the death of so many and the epic wave of hatred that just absorbs in in Europe um, between the wars, uh, the Weimar years, and, you know, this complete divide between those who have and those who don't. And, you know, you have the regret and the fear. And then that, of course, leads Europe and the rest of the world into another even greater war which today we still question um mm. um you know why did that have to happen and yeah. so but right in there in that middle ground you have these these characters jumping up and saying no there's a way that we can you know use our minds to not ever have to fight like that again to never see that again and just how great the the poetic tragedy of it that they are bookended by the two greatest you know the two great wars that yeah. we've seen so as we move into the next podcast, we're going to discuss the new players on the scene in Surrealism. We're going to discuss the Second Manifesto. Mm-hmm. We're going to discuss certain works um, specifically and in general and bring up a, a whole lot more um, people that are relevant to this discussion. Yeah, so I hope you all will stick with us. Hope you've enjoyed this discussion um, and uh, looking yeah. forward to talking to you more, Mike. Yeah, you too, Cameron. And for everybody out there, please feel free to comment and share and descend. <laughs>